2: nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature or in Russia.
3: I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Bibi Gunnah Shonenthan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. How long is that book? It's a short book. Like It's it's comparatively short. But The Good Lieutenant's not that's not
2: a long book. No no it's under that's my shortest book, but it was under three hundred pages, you know. um,
3: how would you feel about reading a fourteen hundred page book? You know, I could I could be into that. I think that um yeah, you and I actually know someone who does that annually. Uh <laughs> someone who was someone who was there the first time we met. Um it's actually kind of shocking to me. How has she not been on the show yet?
2: That's true. We're gonna introduce Yi and Lee in a minute, but I wanna show you something, Sugi. This is actually literally a doorstop copy of War and Peace that I got that has been the doorstop in our bedroom at my house that I've lived in since 2007.
3: It's not, a, is, metaphor. It's it's not, a, not metaphor. a metaphor, it's not a metaphor. It's a
2: it's a real thing. Now people can't see that, they'll be able to see it on uh on the on the video, but it is it is a big big old book. And to talk about it, uh we have really two excellent guests today. Uh Yin Li is the author of seven books including Where Reason's End, which received the Penn Jean Stein Book Award, the essay collection Dear Friend From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life, and the novels The Vagrants and Must I Go. She is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, Guggenheim Fellowship, and Wyndham Campbell Prize, among other honors, a contributing editor to a public space she teaches at Princeton
3: University. And last year, Yoon invited the entire world to read War and Peace with her. Yoon, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: And joining her today is Bridget Hughes, who is uh, no stranger to this show. I think it was like two or three years ago we had you on. Bridget is the founder and editor of A Public Space. She previously edited the Iconic Paris Review. She is a recipient of the Penn Nora Magid Award for Magazine Editing, has curated a literary series at BAM and teaches at Columbia University. With a mission to seek out overlooked and unclassifiable work and to publish beyond established confines, A Public Space is the an independent nonprofit publisher of the eponymous award-winning literary arts and culture magazine and APS books. Welcome, Bridget.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Whitney and Tsuki. It's a pleasure to be back here again, um, and to see what new books you have in your shelves <laughs> while we talk.
2: <laughs> Very revealing. Um, My son put this together for me. This is I'm like, dude, I need a backdrop. Come on, he's the only one with any style sense in the in the house.
3: And uh, yeah, there was a lot of reshuffling of paper back here right before we started. Okay, so for our listeners who aren't already familiar with the 2020 collective reading experience that led to the book that we're here to talk about today, Tolstoy Together. What have you all done and why?
1: Um, exactly, what, what have we done? <laughs> I would say one of the pleasures of working in independent publishing at a small press like a public space is that something like a casual conversation with E last year about reading a book together as a way to stay connected in the early days of the pandemic could morph and expand into something completely unexpected like Tolstoy Together. So we just we have this wonderful freedom to experiment. And we we decided that we would invite people to read War and Peace with us, with I as our guide last year. And we spent eighty-five days doing that from March 18th to June 10th.
2: Yan, yeah, in the in the introduction to Tolstoy Together, you talk about how certain lines from War and Peace remind you of your childhood in Beijing. According to the surely accurate website, distancebetweencities.com, dot com that I was playing around with last night. Beijing and St. Petersburg are three 300- hundred 3,761 miles apart. How could this be? I asked this because, I mean, not how could they be so far apart, but how could you be reminded of your childhood? I asked this because War and Peace reminded me of my childhood in Kansas City, which is 4,922 miles from St. Petersburg.
4: Well, I suppose, you know, when, when Isaac Babel said, if the world were written by an author, the author's name would be Tolstoy. I suppose... You know, he's just one of those writers who have seen so much, who have felt so much, and it doesn't quite matter. He was writing about Russia in eighteen oh five or eighteen to eighteen twelve. You know, I, as I talked about it in the in the introduction, the way he described things. You know, for instance, the hooves, the the horse hooves on the on the street was exactly how I heard it when I was a child, listening to that sound when I was in Beijing. So, you know, the way he described sky and he described people, music, all these things were just in our everyday life. It's never just in Russia, never just in 1805.
3: Bridget, what about you? Um, We should get all of our Tolstoy origins out in the open.
1: Um, Well, I should say I I did a quick Google search and um, I was 4,278 miles away from St. Petersburg in New York City when I read War and Peace for the first time. And for me, that first time, as it was for many people, um, I read War and Peace in the company of Tolstoy together. So for me, the characters in the Tolstoy novel are very much intertwined with these fellow readers who became characters um, in this experience last spring.
2: Suki, what about you? When did you read the book?
3: Well, um, you know this story. It's kind of horrible. Um, Are you
2: going to say you haven't read it and then we're going to no. read, we're gonna have to cancel this podcast?
3: <laughs> um, actually, we're going to just have to do this podcast for 1,400 minutes. I didn't do the first round of APS War and Peace Book Club with you, but I, I did read Tolstoy with you long ago, in a manner of speaking, in a Tolstoy class that ZZ Packer ran in our first year at Iowa. And I picked up the Constance Garnett translation by accident which was not the one she wanted us to use for very good reasons. Um, But I think I had maybe, maybe I had not even read that much in translation before. So I wasn't really, I don't think I was paying the right kind of attention. And so I was sort of drifting along these conversations where the rest of the class was really engaged and discussing. And I was like, what is happening? I don't understand. And then I figured it out and was like, oh no, I've been reading a totally different, extremely dull book. And I tried to catch up, but it was really too late. And I was so far behind, and I was thinking that, you know, the rest of the class was reading, you know, as you mentioned the other night um, in the launch for this book, you know, kind of as a pod, and I was not in the pod anymore. I was was lost. I was lost. It was too late. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the PV translation and the Briggs translations, which are the two that I think you use.
4: Right. You know, I... I have been reading for a while I have been reading the PV translation and then I this for for this reading this year I started to use the Brick translation. It's fascinating to me and and I think Bridget can add to that. It's fascinating different translations just make them sort of different books. The PV translation left the entire French count dialogues in French in the book as Tolstoy wrote it years ago. So we were reading the book probably close to his readers were reading at the time, you know, between Russian and French. We were reading between French and English. And Briggs' translation translated all the French dialogues. In a PV translation, I think War and Peace in general, I just feel it's a very good page turner. But because Briggs translated the French dialogue, it's even a better page turner. It was very engaging. It's just it, it moves fast. But then there are moments, I think, the two translations had different s- decisions made about translation. For instance, there was one... When I was reading PV translation, I was very confused. So Nikolai Rostov, Rostov, when he was injured, his mother said, oh, this baby, you know, she was thinking about his infanthood, said his first word was not mama, but Brush. That was in PV translation. And I was very confused when I read that last year. So I actually put on Twitter I said I don't know anyone speaking Russian, but you know, it's Mama and Brush so close to uh, to each other in Russian. And someone else, I think a couple of Russian readers said it was not Brush in the original text. So their conclusion is P V just chose. Brush as sort of like a nonsense word, meaning that you know, this boy, this little kid's first word was not mama. And then I went to check Briggs. Briggs did not give the word, Briggs just said this child's first word was not mama. So I thought it was interesting, just you know, two translations, the tiny places, details, they would make different decisions. There was a French saying the cousinhood is a dangerous neighborhood. So PV just left the French. The co- cousinhood is a dangerous neighborhood, and Briggs translated into very much like an English saying: "Cousins, cousins, troubles a dozens." <laughs> just that in, 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 the feelings of the the texture of the text felt a little different
2: yeah i got the briggs translation from paul slovak who's an editor at viking where i used to be published but the one that i read is not neither one of these this is from 1938 oh. by someone named Maud. do you know this one yes yeah and it has these woodcuts in the it and couple, stuff, right? It's a very beautiful book. One. It has, to, it's a, I, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I didn't never look at the translation until just now because I didn't care. It was just my book, my my copy. I
1: think a lot of readers also read Mauds translation last year, right, Bridget? Mm-hmm. it was it was one of the popular ones, yes. Suki, I'm so oh, okay, yeah.
2: so the one I read is okay. it was good. They, they all,
1: were all they were all I, okay. Okay. Only Sugi got that constant garnet one.
3: <laughs> I think I think the word texture is exactly right, because my memory of the texture of that prose is still like distinctively, I was like, oh, I don't understand. I don't even understand why we're reading this. I remember feeling so foolish. And then last night I was coming through the Hennepin County Library website and sort of looking to see what translations were available there. And I saw actually that it's quite easy to make that mistake because so many listings of the books give no importance to the translation. So it would even, like, one was listed as PV, and then when I downloaded it, it was mod. And and I was sort of like, I don't actually, there's no way, at least digitally, in, in those listings to go through. So I think it was one of those moments when I really missed going into the library or the bookstore and and picking them up and looking but yeah texture feels like exactly the right word.
2: I want to ask I mean we asked this a little bit earlier but it is true we, we we had a we had an earlier episode about Chekhov and the American love for Chekhov as a writer and you know your group was discussing Tolstoy but there's also you know in America I grew up reading Gogol and Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn and Turgenev not just me but my whole family my I remember my grandfather going duck hunting with him and he was reading Solzhenitsyn and it was a very common to read Russian writers. There's something happening there. I wonder why. I mean, yes, Tolstoy is a great and universal writer, but is there anything more specific about these Russian writers that has made them international or even, you know, uh, specific to my life, uh, uh, American-loved writers, do you think? Do you have any uh, theories on this? I don't have
4: any theory. I can only speak for myself. I, I love Russian novels because they're long, (laughs)
1: You don't
4: don't get a lot of American writers writing that, you know, big tomes. I mean, Moby Dick is long, but half the length of War and Peace. There's something about reading Russian literature. To me, it's just an unhurried pacing. You know, you can have a book, a novel, say contemporary novel, 150 pages. People would say they would read a novel in one sitting or, you know, devolved novel I don't think we can really develop, uh a, a, a Russian novel. We'll get indigestion. In so I, I think it's just a way, I don't know, I think with War and Peace or with any big Russian novel, there's no hurry. You just read, you know, 20 pages, 15 pages, ten as we did last year, 10 to 15 pages a day. There's that very good, reliable pacing as though, you know, reading is just part of your day. It's just, you know, a meal, an extra meal, an extra snack, an anchor of the day. So that's why I love Russian novels. I don't don't know if other people feel that way.
1: Do you remember, this is an unfair question, but growing up in China, did War and Peace, was it revered in the same way as it is here?
4: Yes, absolutely. So Tolstoy was widely read. Now I remember, I think growing up in China, we... We, I don't think American history probably had that before, but it would be in British history, as novels serialized in newspapers. You know, they only give you a chapter, half a chapter a day. You know, you read it every day. I grew up reading newspapers. Always, you know, the last page was the serialized novels, including Tolstoy's novels. So, so that also helps with the pacing. You can never rush. You just have to wait until tomorrow is here to read. But yes, to answer your question, Bridget, Tolstoy was widely read. Yes.
2: I also wonder if the I have, my theory on this is that the, there's a distance that helps. For instance, if you had set an American novel during the same time period that Tolstoy's writing, The peasants, who are frequently talked about and managed by the characters in the novel, would be slaves, right? And it would be almost impossible to read the book without, you know, thinking about that, right? I mean, it's in other words, like Gone with the Wind is no longer a text that people can deal with because of the way that it concentrated on the people who were owning slaves without thinking about the institution of slavery all that much. Now. The novel, Tolstoy's novel, does deal with the serfs and peasants, but not like we would think about them in a modern context. And I feel like it's easier to, like, sort of not think about that when you're reading about the book and to concentrate on the characters themselves. Does that seem unfair to Tolstoy, or do you think that that is helpful?
4: I would say maybe so. I have, that's a new thought to me. I've never thought about it.
2: I always think about the Bolshevik Revolution, which is not far away when Tolstoy is writing this. And we'll talk about this maybe later. And then toward the end, there's a passage where they talk about the peasants, using the terminology of the novel, coming in and looting Moscow after the French have been gone. And I start thinking about, oh, you know what? Things are going to change for these people. This whole system is going to be gone within 40 years, right? Or 50. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one of the things that happened because of the way Egan had us read the novel last year was that you know, None of the serfs are protagonists in the novel, but they have these really striking and significant moments throughout the novel. And because we were reading so sl- slowly, our attention was drawn to them, I think, maybe in a way that it wouldn't have been if we were reading it at a faster pace. That's such a good point, Bridget.
4: I think, you know, I think it is true if we read the novel very fast, we're only paying attention to, or mostly paying attention to the plot, right? You know, the major plot lines, the love stories, the war stories. And yet, you know, Tolstoy had all these serfs, servants, you know, peasants. Their stories were all embedded in every moment of that big novel. I do think you're right, Bridget. I think when we read slowly... My favorite character, of course, it was you know, the little surf boy. Moscow was burning down and he was walking upstairs he opened the piano he started to play the piano with one finger you know you could feel that, that the sound and, and the little fingers so those moments I do think you know Toso I put in there for us to see it only takes just some time
1: slow reading to digest and to catch those moments but most of them don't have names so you it's hard when you're talking about them you have to describe the action or that that scene
3: yeah, they seem to be, um, yeah, named descriptively or have sort of an identifying a positive and then you track them, which is, I don't know, I guess different. I mean, I think when you talk about serialization, like at least for me, the obvious comparison is Dickens and thinking about how he pays attention to minor characters or how i pay attention to his minor characters and i think it's very different there it feels like dialogue more
4: going back to that texture i think when you read slowly you are reading te- for the texture right you know the minor characters all these people coming on stage off stage and they they talk they interact it's really this the texture of life rather than the plot line or the movement of the big novel
3: it seems to me like one of the joys is the feeling of crowdedness. So digging into the text and the ways that you and your audience reacted to it, we've always already started talking about characters, but Pierre seems like we should definitely talk about Pierre. Um, and Ian, you have, an, <laughs> you have an excellent gloss on the language that Tolstoy uses with the character of Pierre, and I wonder if you would read to us from, I think that's day four of the project.
4: Sorry, let me just turn on my light. So this, this happened on day four, and it's, it's my, my sort of thoughts about awkward but not embarrassed, which is how Tolstoy described Pierre de is Pierre asked awkwardly, as usual, but without embarrassment. One distinctive trait of Tolstoy's writing is his reputation, a tendency that today would be discouraged by teachers and editors In the scene with Boris and Pierre, it's the repetition of the words, awkward and embarrassed. I hadn't noticed it until a friend pointed it out. So much for paying attention. We often need another pair of eyes to understand what fascinates us. Awkward, but not embarrassed. What kind of people are this way? I've always loved Pierre but didn't feel I could articulate my love until I saw the distinction Tolstoy makes between these adjectives. Awkwardness indicates a kind of lacking physical skills or social skills that is visible to the world. Pierre is awkward in many ways. He makes people uncomfortable, but there are people who act according to A shared script, and those who do not err from the script have a singular advantage over those who do. Embarrassment to me refers to an entirely different kind of self consciousness. It is about what remains invisible to the world but visible to oneself. If I'm humming a song to myself, I'm not a good singer. I'm neither embarrassed nor awkward. If another person overhears me, I may feel awkward because my singing isn't good enough for others' ears. But I wouldn't feel embarrassed. After all, I'm not a professional singer, and I accept my limits. I would, however, feel embarrassed if I read some of my published work and see a line that is not good enough. Perhaps no reader would recognize that. And yet, such a line would remain an embarrassment. Pierre is always trying to find a place for himself in the world, and in that struggle, he bumbled and is full of awkwardness. But he knows exactly who he is, what he wants from life. He only does not know how to get it. All his pursuits in the novel, religion, numerology, carousels, reformations, marriage, and love. All of these pursuits will place him in a different kinds of awkwardness, but he doesn't feel embarrassed by any one of them. He's doing his best to be what he wants to be. There's never embarrassment in that.
2: Thank you so much. That's excellent. I have, like, stuff written in this script describing Pierre, but you've already done such a great job describing his... his uh. Awkwardness, but lack of embarrassment, you know, his, and he's, you know, diffident, you know, he, he's often described as being forgetful or distracted. I feel like he's also a very modern character, which is one of the reasons why I think readers like him. And like, he could have been a guitarist for a band like Fountains of Wayne or something <laughs> like that would have been, that's how I imagine him today. Um, Bridget, you're the editor of a great literary magazine. Do you ever see descendants of Pierre in the stories that you read from the slush pile?
1: Whitney, that's such a good question. Let me think. Um, you know, we did an event earlier this week, kind of a, a launch event with the, um, for the book with with Ian and Alexandra Schwartz, who's one of the contributors. And one of the people in the audience asked a question. He said he'd bought the book for his two children in their 20s. And what could he say to them to encourage them to read War and Peace with him? And Alex said, tell them about Pierre. He's the perfect character, you know, he's in his 20s, he's the perfect character to read when you are in your 20s. Um, and I was thinking I wished that I had I'd had the chance to, to meet Pierre then. So I'm thinking about the magazine and stories we've published and two come to mind. One is a story by Jesmyn Ward called Cattle Hall and one is a story by Jamel Brinkley called Infinite Happiness. And they're and both about young people. They're yes? both about young people. I'm trying to picture the three of those characters in a room together and what the conversation would be like. <laughs>
4: Awkward
3: <laughs> and embarrassed, <laughs> but not embarrassed.
1: <laughs> not embarrassed. Yeah. Um, but Whitney, I think when we're looking for submissions in the future, I will specifically and intentionally be looking for a Pierre character in a story.
2: I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the, um, and a character, I mean, a, a writer, Jonathan Franzen's very good at writing about uh, awkwardness. And we were talking about the corrections the other day in uh, a different uh, context, but his main character in that story is embarrassed, right? I, th- I feel like uh, the young man, I'm forgetting his name now, but he is embarrassed. He's not, he's not, he doesn't glide through things the way that Pierre does in a certain way and have possessed that same self-confidence. It's very unique, right? That kind of character. Well,
4: Pierre... It doesn't really glide through. He bumbles through. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he reminds me. You know, it's funny because he, he's so distracted that he almost can come across as you know insouciant or you know just confident. But he's he's not like he always reminds me of those really big bumblebees with big body. You know, it's always surprising to see them flying around because they they have a heavy body and they have a small pair of wings. So that always sounds like Pierre for me.
2: It's the character Chip I'm thinking of. I always want to say Charles, but it's just Chip.
1: Chip, oh yeah. I just Do you think of Pierre as self-confident?
4: No, I don't. Yep. Well, I think self-confident to me would be A trait that has something to do with the world. You know, if you go out to the world, you have to present yourself in a self confident way. I think he doesn't quite, he's not at that level yet. He's more about worrying about himself, just how to be himself.
2: Yes, but worrying about your, I feel like he worries about himself and whether or not he feels right in the world rather than worrying about what other people are thinking of him. And I
3: think that is a kind of self confidence.
4: Yes. Well, that is a good distinction. Yes.
3: Yes. So here I have to advance my theory that he's kind of like Napoleon Dynamite. Because <laughs> I had I had to look up Fountains of Wayne. Wait, I was like I don't remember them, because I was like, do I agree with this or not? And then I was like, who do I think? And then I don't know. I just yeah, um, the sort of trying to decide something and sailing and maybe that maybe that's too self confident. But yeah, think developing a persona kind of and then really leaning into it. So I know that I thought of
2: Fountains of Wayne because they made up an incredibly stupid name for their band, and then just sort of like, well, that's it. That's what we're. That's what we are. <laughs>
3: <laughs> there may be whole genres of music that are very pure. I know that there was some heated debate about Prince Andre during this collective reading, and you and Alexander Schwartz talked about this a little bit the other night. And in you your own long-held opinion of Prince Andre, shifted somewhat. And there's a funny exchange in Tolstoy Together where there's a bit of back and forth. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what other characters inspired the most passionate discussion during the 85 days of reading Natasha or Boris or someone else. I think Natasha
4: also has caused some heated discussion. I remember at one point when Natasha, this was when Natasha was a young girl, 13-year-old. Everybody loves that Dolokhov person who's sort of like a very mean-spirited but handsome guy. And she said, you know, I don't like him. I, 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 I think he makes me uncomfortable. He's heartless. And I remember the, the Twitter discussion. Someone said, finally, Natasha is not just a frivolous little girl. She can see these things. Remember, Bridget? I think there's a moment someone commented on that.
2: Now, wait, I just yeah. want you to do one thing real quick while we're talking about Natasha. Is, is Contextualize her within the book. Just imagine we have some listeners who maybe read this a long time ago and don't remember or who haven't read it. So what is her role in the story?
4: Well, Natasha is, you know, one of the central characters, you know, if, especially in the piece part. It's, you know, the other day when we launched the book Told story Together, Alex did frame it and said, you know, if you want to talk about the book to young people, you frame it as two great love stories. And that's, you know, the two great love stories, the love story between... I should, is it a spoiler alert so it, it so natasha would be in both great two great love stories, so she's a central character, yeah, but yeah, I think she has you know see she has caused some of the disagreement or discussions online bridget, you think
1: i guess i think she was a character that people had very strong feelings about I think they recognized parts of themselves in her and and I think they also didn't recognize aspects of her in themselves. And so maybe the tension between those two qualities.
2: Like, for example.
1: For example, there was one
4: point in the novel, Natasha was so bored. And, you know, not bored. She said she was bored. Actually, she was depressed and sad because her lover was not there. You know, it's, I mean, side point. I Actually, sometimes I think depression and boredom are quite alike.
2: Or, oh, know. I definitely think so, and Chekhov for sure.
4: <laughs> yeah, so, so she just walked around and she was bossing people around, and she sent this person to do this, and she sent that person to do that. But there was the returning as people wouldn't mind being told to do something for her. There was the love for her; people all like to do that. I think that was an example that you know, different readers would have a different would have different reactions and, uh, and interpretations. Someone would say, you know, this is just a spoiled brat. You know, she's telling everyone to do all these things. But the good thing about Tolstoy is when he writes about a character, it's not, it's, not always about that character or it's about how other characters react to that character. I think Alex Schwartz really put it nicely. It's like, you know, it's people, it's a characters meeting somewhere. So that, that character, one character meeting another character, how other people treat Natasha. I thought that was fascinating, but I do think that's one example that different readers would have different reactions.
3: Am I remembering right? In Tolstoy together, I remember reading a discussion, and I think it was about Natasha, about real women and who's real, and which made me laugh a little. And I was thinking, Bridget, about your earlier comment about the readers themselves as characters. So now it's a little bit like the cast of the book is deeper and the other people meeting the characters are these readers who are off, off in the corner gossiping about them, which I, which I really enjoyed. I was, I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to go back and think about real women and, and who's, who fits that category.
1: That was one of the pleasures of reading it with so many different people who brought to- so many different perspectives and experiences to each of the characters and, and to the novel. And so you could sort of compare your, your viewpoint against three, four, five, 50, 200 other, other perspectives.
3: I'm curious to hear both of you answer a question posed by one of your own readers slash apparently characters, um, Margaret Harris. This question made me laugh. She asks, of the War and Peace characters whose ultimate fates don't make it into the epilogue, which one do you most want to hear about and why is it Dolokov? <laughs> and then she goes on to mention Vera and Berg and Boris and Julie and Anna Mikhailovna um, and several others. Including and she her the end of her of her dozen or so list is the lavender gray dog and I'm curious about who you would pick. I appreciate it. Go
1: ahead. There was great fondness for the lavender gray dog, <laughs> um, and I think in particular in people who were reading the translation where he is lavender gray, he's a slightly different color in the other translations, and people often weren't as fond of him if he was a different shade. I would like. Well, it, it's not quite whose fates we don't know, but I would have liked to continue with Pierre, both Pierre and Natasha through the remainder of their life. You, know, you, meet, you meet Natasha when she's very, very young and you meet Pierre when he's, when he's still quite young and you, care, you travel with them through decades of their life. So I would have liked to keep traveling with them. And in terms of whose fates we don't know, I would say all of the, all of the characters who are there just for a fleeting moment I would like yes. I would like for them to be the the protagonist of, of a story. A lot of characters. Berg, for instance, I would like to see him as an older man,
4: probably you know still self centered, but there's that one man, you know, as I said we said unnamed or less named characters from minor you know setting. It's that man who the first for the first time saw him. He's you know this is when Moscow was burning. He's a yacht porter. He came into the Big, big house, and he—that was the first time he saw himself in a mirror. So he smiled, he grinned. He just—you could clearly feel the whole world was breaking down, but he was just enjoying the first glimpse of his real self. I always wonder what happened to him. I always just—I always just had this wish that he didn't die in Moscow in that big fire, and he would just go on. So that's actually, I'm always attached to him. Even though he just, he had two lines in that book.
3: When I read this question, I I also went in sort of thinking about, you know, the sort of industry around Jane Austen's spinoffs and continuations and covers and retellings. <laughs> and, you know, the, that industry obviously does not exist around this book. And I was sort of like, why not? I You know,
4: I, I that's a, such a good question, Suki. I have a Yes, why not? I mean, partly is this book ended after 1812, and in about ten years there will be a revolution, and you realize, you know, Pierre and Rostov, they might have been going into that revolution, you know, the Decemberists, and they would not, they would meet a very sad fate. <laughs> I think, I think partly not to spin off is one is. You love them so much. I think when you love, you write a spin-off, it's because you want the stories to go on forever. And they may have been exiled to you know Siberia by then. <laughs> Very sad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was a fair point. <laughs> Wouldn't you still want to know? Yes. Yes.
2: <laughs> I always liked, we mentioned Prince Andre earlier, I always was interested in that character. That was my... Guy who I sort of was curious about. Isn't he the one that has the moment on the battlefield where he stares up at the at the sky, lying on his back? And it's a very famous moment in the novel. That I always, I guess, as a young person, I was curious about war, and so in a way, reading the book was part of learning about what war was. And you know, I ended up getting to find out a lot more about war than I ever wanted to as a war reporter later in life, um, and someone who wrote about it. I've been thinking about that. As these last few weeks, the U.S. has ended its disastrous 20-year war in Afghanistan. And I wanted to talk about Tolstoy's relevance as a war writer. And there were a lot of war writers, including Matt Gallagher, who's been on the show a couple of times, who commented and, are, and are, whose comments are published in the book. So they were, you know, these some of these people are veterans of Afghanistan, right? And I wondered if you could talk about how America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan provided a backdrop for the way that people were reading the book during this process. Now, obviously the pullout of Afghanistan wasn't happening at the time that you were doing it, but still people were drawing these parallels very directly, I thought.
1: We read with a number of, of people with military experience. Matt Gallagher, um, I think a writer named Dwayne Faria, who had also fought in Afghanistan or Iraq, and with people whose fathers or grandfathers had fought in earlier wars. And it was really striking to read with them, in particular to see people who hadn't had that Direct experience of of war, read a chapter in Tolstoy and say this you know this is not what I would have expected and then to have the contrast of that with Matt saying, this is exactly how it was and you know we're doing Ian is very generously hosting an encore book club to read war and Peace again this fall and I suspect that Afghanistan um, will be very much sort of part of the frame of how we read and experience the novel this time.
2: I do want to say that, I, if I'm remembering correctly, Matt was in Iraq, not Afghanistan, so I just don't want to mess up on his service. But, um, you know, there, there still are parallels there that are, that are easy to draw. Yeah.
1: He was really, I mean, it was really striking, and, and he was hugely generous with his comments um, during Tolstoy Together.
2: He's a good guy. Well,
1: the readers. Yeah, he was, he was, he was great. <laughs> well, and I mean, he, I he have this— th- Yeah, throughout the book.
2: I have this copy. This is my very first book of Tolstoy's that I ever read. It's a 1960 edition that was my mom's. I think in college of the short short stories of Leo Tolstoy. Before I read Anna Karenina or read War and Peace, I read that, and a lot of those stories, including the very first one, I think called The Raid, are set in in the Caucasus when Russians are fighting Muslim Chechens, right, or sometimes working with them. You know, and the parallels between those stories and what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan and the United States are almost too painful and eerie to contemplate. Um, Do you have a sense of how Tolstoy's personal war experiences, years after the conflict he's writing about in War and Peace, affected the way that he wrote about conflict in War and Peace, which takes place, you know, before he was born? Right,
4: right, right. I mean, he was, at the beginning of his career, he was more autobiographical, you know, the childhood experience and his war experience in Crimea. And I, I think par- I think part of the his war experience probably framed his view of the world. My understanding is he was there for this terrible and pointless war because Russian did no, no longer wanted to fight, but the English they wanted to fight only because they already got all these armies sent there. You know it's all about someone wanting to make a point. So all these people went into the fight and died and, but it's just sort of just people's whimsy. I, I guess people at the top, their are whimsies just directed like thousands of people's fate. So I think that his war experience, you know, really I think probably framed his view. War is horrible, but I think that's just his his view, so.
2: One of the things that, that that Tolstoy does is careful to uh, pay attention to is that is the separation between the people who are giving the orders safely from back in Moscow and the people who are actually doing the fighting. One of your uh, people, one of the readers, during the conversation and Leontis cited this passage from Tolstoy: writes, "The Russians, half of whom died, did all that could be done and were not to be blamed, because other Russians sitting at home in war rooms in warm rooms proposed that they should do the impossible." Um, that passage made me feel like you could search and replace the Russians from the Americans and be talking about our wars today. But I wondered if you could just talk about Tolstoy's view on this.
1: Well, I, I'm not sure I can speak on Tolstoy's view, but I think that Annie made that comment in the context of what we were experiencing last year while we were reading this novel in the early days of the pandemic. And, and I think we were all all thinking about which in which of Tolstoy's characters did we recognize ourselves? And when was that recognition comfortable? And when was that recognition slightly more uncomfortable? You know, and that the sort of marvelous thing about the novel is that Tolstoy is giving you the whole breadth of the event, of the experience.
2: So she was talking about it specifically in terms of like frontline workers during COVID, not soldiers. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I love that.
1: If I remember correctly, I think she was. I think that was the conversation that, that during those weeks. Right,
4: but I just want to add, you know, the way what Bridget just said, sometimes Tolstoy makes people uncomfortable or comfortable. I mean, what what makes me interested in him is, you know, he's sort of actually he is sort of like a, always in between. His his family came from this really good background, you know, historically very high ranked in the society, and he sometimes he he would work against that society, he would work on behalf of the peasants. But then he's also not the progressive left, right? Lenin really hated him because he was, just, <laughs> he just doesn't, he doesn't fit into any mold. He's patriotic, but not, you know, conservative. He's progressive, but not revolutionary. He's just individualist. And in any society, an individualist, just makes a group of people uncomfortable, and I think that's that's where he is coming from you know when he writes about the leaders and the followers he's really in both worlds he, he i think he he sort of he stands in both worlds
2: I love that that you talk about him as an individualist and that and that collectivism, which would come to Russia much later would not would just, doesn't work for him
3: right that's not would never be possible I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the format, the shape of this book, which captures this, you know, really distinctive conversation. It's not uh, a conventional looking book. I wonder how you thought about um, taking that, that online, the collective experience and, and capturing it in a printed book. How did you decide to do that? And what, what experiences were you trying to capture? I think
1: we, yeah, I think we were trying to capture a couple of things when we first launched the book club, the two things that had been important were that we would read slowly, half an hour every day, and that we would read consistently. And I remember in the first week of the book club, you know, we got to Friday afternoon and we said, well, are we going to ask people to read on the weekend? Or are we going to take a break? And Ian said, no, we must keep reading over the weekend. And that was such a good decision. Um, so we wanted to capture, we want, when we were structuring the book, we wanted we were thinking about how to capture that that day-to-day reading so we structured it as a as a journal and because eon had sort of started each day's conversation with her comments she's on the left-hand side of of the page and then the group of readers who joined us each day their voices are on the right-hand of the page so there are sort of these two simultaneous conversations going on about the book so that was one way we thought about it and then Another aspect of it that I was thinking about was that for me the experience of reading War and Peace with all of these people has shaped how I have read other books over the past year and so I wanted it to be that the kind of book that you could open up to a page almost at random and find a comment or an observation about Tolstoy or about a character in War and Peace or just about a way of reading that you might take with you to whatever novel or story or poem that you might be reading now. It's very well said.
4: <laughs> and that's how I feel. And it is, you know, I feel that I, even personally, I've learned so much just from reading, not not Tolstoy, but reading this book, Bridget edited. It's just to learn to see people's angles and people's, I, you know, I, I probably said at lunch, you know, to see where my blind spot is and people coming in to compliment that. So, all of a sudden I can see things that I used not to be able to see. So
1: that's from this book.
4: Just work, working with this book, I learned that.
1: The one other thing that we did in the book is that, you know, I believe that Twitter is limited to what, 280 characters. So every now and then there was a comment or an observation that we we wanted to ask somebody if they could expand a little bit on. So there are sort of interspersed throughout the book these, these slightly longer essays. So one of the writers... Uh, or the, one of the contributors to the book was, is a, a, somebody named Ilan Mizel. And so he has this great little essay, uh, Tolstoy is to Dostoevsky as Tchaikovsky is to Rachmaninoff. And he pairs um, each of the characters, or several of the characters in War and Peace, with one of Tchaikovsky's seasons. And I've loved that. And I've sort of thought about that with, with characters that I've read um, in the other novels that, that, that I've read over the past year.
2: That's very beautiful. Uh, look, thanks to both of you for joining us and producing this lovely book. I mean, what you did with, with uh, War and Peace basically proves the, the, our whole idea of existence as a podcast, which is that everything you can find on, on your Twitter feed or in the Evening News has already been written about in literature and within this book that you discussed <laughs> for 85 days. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you very so much, Whitney and Suki and Eon. Thank you so
4: much for having us. It's so much fun talking about literature.
3: (laughs) Thanks so much to both of you. And and to our listeners, uh, like like Napoleon, we command you to go out and pick up a copy of Tolstoy together from a public space books. The encore discussion of War and Peace with Yi Yun will begin in about a week.